Well, we're continuing our series on Christianity 101, and we have gotten to another section, and we're, we're closing this series out. And remember, the foundation for the series is that people say that all religions are fundamentally the same, and they are, except for what they teach about sin, salvation, heaven, hell, the nature of God, the nature of man, nature of members of the church. Other than that, they're exactly the same. So that was our outline. We've taught through those topics. But then just some basic things on how to interpret the Bible. And last week we looked at the home. And I hope that, that your homes, as you interacted with each other, that they're a little different this week because of that. And I hope that the message didn't cause fights in your homes last week. It was intended to help. And today we are doing part two of the message, What's the Difference? What's the Difference? And so today we're going to be looking at the Word of Faith movement and the Pentecostal movements. And I want to start with this. There are differences between what we believe and what a Pentecostal church would teach or what a Word of Faith church would teach. And when you identify differences, that's not mean, that's not ugly, that's not being critical. We're just identifying the differences. Amen. If we were a Pentecostal church, it would be Grace Pentecostal Church. We're not. We're Grace Baptist Church. That's who we are, right? And just so you know, just as our practice has been for any message like this, I'm not giving you my opinion of what they teach. We're going to show you from their own documents what they teach, and that's the only fair way to do it. Would you all agree with that? It's the only fair way to do it, and we want to be honest. All of that being said, Man, we're going to be in heaven with most of these folks. Now, there's some folks that I'm going to show you today that, you know, I don't think they're going to go to heaven. But for the most part, Pentecostal people are born again. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. How many of you know some really godly Pentecostal folks? Yeah, they're not our enemies. That's not what this is at all. The purpose of this in Christianity 101 is to show how our teaching is different from theirs. That's it. And then to help you to know how to help someone that's in one of those movements. So we're going to give some of the history of those things and how it came to be. And I'm going to show you the difference between the Pentecostal movement and the Word of Faith movement. And we're going to show some of those distinctions. Um, but I just want to stay right from the beginning. This is not an attack on those godly Pentecostal people. Are you all hearing me on that? I would hate it if somebody left here with the impression that we think we are better than them. That is not the heart behind this at all. We're going to be in heaven together. Um, they'll just be surprised to find out that they should have been better. No, I'm just kidding. Just, <laughs> we're, gonna, we're just going to show some of the differences that we have. So why don't we start with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for Grace Baptist Church and the 67 years of teaching that's happened in this place. And Father, I'm very thankful for it. Lord, I'm thankful for those who have come to know you through the preaching of Pentecostal preachers throughout the years, through the preaching of Methodist preachers throughout the years. Uh, but Lord, we are very concerned about the danger of this Word of Faith movement and the harm that it's causing. So Father, I pray that we'll be able to have some good understanding of those things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the foundation of the Word of Faith movement, and don't worry, I'm going to define these things for you as we go is the Signs and Wonders movement. Now, tonight, I hope that you'll come back tonight at 5 o'clock. Tonight, I'm going to speak on Signs and Wonders. How do we answer those things? When people talk about these Signs and Wonders, whether it be tongues or healing or those different issues, how do we as believers, how do we answer that? That's tonight at 5 o'clock, so I hope that you'll be back for that. This morning, I want us to look at just the background and what's the difference in these movements. But I want to start with this. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Get Matthew chapter 16 and get Proverbs chapter 25. <clears throat> Matthew 16 and Proverbs chapter 25. And we're going to start in the Matthew passage. I'm sorry, in the Proverbs passage. One of the saddest things that happens to people is when their faith fails them. And you'll have someone say this, I thought God was going to do this for me. So 
as, as a pastor, there are so many things going on in our church. There are some marriages that are in trouble. There are people that are sick and people that I love. And so my desire as pastor would be to, to today try to preach a comforting sermon for that. But I announced this. So I'm preaching this. I wish that I could heal you. I want to. I could start crying right now. I want to heal that home. I want to heal that person that's sick. Now here, let me ask you a question. Can God do that? Absolutely. We believe that God heals. We believe that God saves. We believe that God renews. We believe that God restores and repairs. We believe all of that with all of our hearts. Unto the death we believe those things. But I can't do those things. Now, in certain cases, I can give godly counsel that if heeded, could save a marriage. But I can't save the marriage. And as far as healing, I can't do any of that. None of you are coming to me for me to prescribe you medication. Amen. Amen. <laughs> you do not want me prescribing medication. You certainly don't want me doing surgery. How many of you want someone who knows what they're doing? If they're going to cut on you, you want them to know what they're doing. That would help. Man, I wish I could heal you. I wish I could do that. But today... We're going to look at some passages and some things to show some of the biblical understanding. Then tonight, we'll actually get into the, the biblical teaching on those things. It's an awful thing when people, when their faith fails them. Look at Proverbs 25 and verse 14. Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. So imagine if I said, come here today, we're going to have a healing service. But then I don't heal you. Was there ever anyone that Jesus chose to heal and they were not healed? No. No, that's not the way that it worked in Scripture. And so when people profess to be able to, to exercise one of these apostolic gifts and then they can't, man, there are a lot of people that have walked away from the faith because of that. It's very dangerous. And so there are a lot of people looking for signs. Go to Matthew chapter 16. And let's give... How many of you think that, that we ought to always accept Jesus Christ's estimation of a subject? Right? How many of you would call yourself Christian? Would you raise your hand? That means we're supposed to follow Christ. And so when Christ says something, we ought to heed it. Is that fair? Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 4. This is Jesus Christ speaking. A wicked... And adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Um, so you know that there are people all over the world looking for a sign. They'll go to a signs and wonders service. And just how does Jesus Christ describe those people? So here's the problem. When I start showing you these different teachings, here's what we think. Pastor doesn't like my Aunt Millie. Not at all. The person I don't like is Aunt Millie's pastor. Jesus Christ built up and helped people that were following bad teaching. The leaders... They were wicked and adulterous and whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones, dogs and snakes. That's how Jesus spoke about them. Why? Why would the gentle shepherd speak that way? Because their ideas have eternal consequences. Jesus only wants the best for us. And so he gives us clear instruction in the scriptures. And yet there are men and women preaching all over the world right now things that are completely contrary to the teaching of the Word of God. We're against that. We're against that. And so we're going to try and have a completely biblical understanding of these things. 
And so our foundation is, man, it's a bad thing when somebody claims they have a gift that they don't. It's really bad. And then a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. So the problem is we have a lot of people that are looking for something that God told them not to look for. The only sign they were going to see was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what's the foundation of our hope? Physical healing or the resurrection of the dead? You see the difference? It is completely, completely different. All right, so let's dive into this. What's the difference? Let's get a Pentecostal timeline. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. He was an Anglican priest, and on his, he had come to the United States. He had gone to Savannah for two or three years to be a missionary, and he failed miserably. And you know what's amazing? On the way back, he got saved. How many of you think it's better to be saved as a missionary? <laughs> your, your results are going to be better, <laughs> I think, when you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And, um, man, there are millions of people in heaven because of John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine if that could be said of you? That because of your work, millions of people are going to have their eternity changed. Praise God for that. So Wesley was an amazing, amazing man. But something happened in his teaching. He met a guy named John Fletcher. And so... In 1739, John and Charles Wesley, they published a song, Justified But Not Sanctified. Justified But Not Sanctified. And what they meant by that, they explained in the 1740 preface to that publication. It says, the Wesley brothers denied that full salvation is at once given to true believers. So they look at what this is saying. They denied, and it's a quote, that full salvation is at once given to true believers. So when I got saved, I got saved all the way. Right? So look at John chapter 5. Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Okay, so salvation, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You hear that word and then you have to believe it. So, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me might have everlasting life. Hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So from this point on, from 1740 on, the teaching of John and Charles Wesley and then John Fletcher, who was the, kind of their theologian, and then in the United States, a man named Francis Asbury, that teaching of you get saved and then there's something that happens later on, that began to infect all of Methodism, and it infected a lot of Christianity. So how many of you can see that the basic teaching of Scripture, the foundational teaching of Scripture, is different than what Wesley is saying? Right? For whosoever... Can we look at it, Romans 3.23? Let's get our Bibles and look at it. Romans 3.23. You know what? Go to Romans 10.13. Let's do that one instead. Since I gave you the wrong reference. Romans 10.13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall eventually be saved. What's, what's, the, what's the clear reading of the text? Shall be saved. Now, how many of you recognize that, that the primary difference between the old line Pentecostals and the Baptists, the old line Pentecostals would say that the main difference would be we teach once saved, always saved. Right? How many of you have had that conversation with somebody? Now, let me just say this, and, and I'm going to show you here in a minute. Those old-line Pentecostals, my dad went to Bob Jones University back in the 50s, and they had a preacher that would come in. His name was Pappy Reveal, and Pappy Reveal ran uh, a rescue mission in Warsaw, Indiana. And he was a Pentecostal. Dad would quote him all the time, and Dad loved the ministry of Pappy Reveal. Those old-time Pentecostals, they behaved very much in preaching and in evangelism and in holiness 
just like Old Line Methodists and Old Line Independent Baptists. They're very similar in many ways. All right? So when you'll hear somebody come up from the mountains and they come from an old church of God and you talk to them and you just feel like you're with a brother in Christ, sister in Christ. Right? We're going to see the difference, the primary difference between you and them is going to be the biblical teaching of eternal security. That's one thing. And then sometimes they spoke in tongues, sometimes they didn't. That would be one of the other differences. All right? But the Bible makes it very clear that when you get saved, you get saved all the way. You become Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter five. Verse 17. Let's read that out loud together. Everybody gets there? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, Isn't that awesome? Man, I just love that. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. You know what? Let's start reading in verse 7. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Now, what is this, what's the context of that fear? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not, there, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Who, what is that, what's that next word? Hath saved us. And called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now that immortality... That immortality. What does that mean? It means you're no longer mortal. You're not going to die. Now, we don't have that body yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes it very clear. Starting in verse 51 through verse 58, what you see is, man, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We're going to be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, this mortal shall put on immortality. That's what the Bible says. So that, that is going to happen. But our salvation is already accomplished. Verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. So my part is believing. Is that fair? So that's what the apostle is saying. Not of works. He just said that in verse 9. My part is believing. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. My part's believing, his part's keeping. I love that. Because I stink. I can't keep it. Man, I got so mad a couple of times this week. If I could have lost my salvation, it was gone. Building the church, building other stuff going on. I got so mad. And I know, you're a preacher, you're not supposed to do that well. Oh, well. <laughs> Thank God I didn't kill anybody, you know? It, it, I can't keep it. I can't keep my salvation. And young men, I didn't lose control. Just because you have a temper doesn't mean you have to lose control. Amen, parents? Amen. Right? So, the Bible makes it very clear that when I get saved, I'm saved all the way. John Wesley didn't believe that. He believed in something called absolute perfection, complete sanctification. And that's what he's talking about, this, that, that salvation, full salvation is at once given to true believers. They don't believe that. Because forgiveness of sins, that's justifying faith, comes first, followed later by the abiding witness of the Spirit and a new clean heart, full sanctifying grace. And this is from John and Charles Wesley Hymns and Sacred Poems, 1739. Now, here's the problem with that statement. 
The, the Bible says, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. The Holy Spirit indwells you at salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 13, how many of you have heard of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, right? In, in Wesleyan circles, that means that you get saved and so, at some point later you're baptized by the Holy Ghost. The only problem is the Bible says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So everybody that's saved is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And at the same time, that Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're in the Spirit, and Spirit's in you. That, that's how you are sealed. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11, in whom, that's Christ, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. So everyone that trusts in Christ, God predestined that they would be saved. All right, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, how does that process work? Verse 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. Isn't the Bible consistent? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Uh, so in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. So what happens? You hear the truth. It's the word of God, the gospel, and then you believe it. When you believe it, what happens? After that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. So the Calvinist says that you're saved and then you believe. That's backwards. <laughs> All right? The Bible makes it very clear that, you're, that you believe and then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You believe that you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit seals you. That, that's your salvation, and you're saved until Jesus Christ comes back to get you, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Isn't that good? And so this understanding from Wesley, it permeated all of Wesleyanism. All right? So what I did, I didn't want to just use, oh, independent Baptist sources to discuss this. So I tried to find a middle-of-the-road uh, standard evangelical work on the subject, and it's the Moody Handbook of Theology. By the way, I recommend that you get that. It's a very helpful book. And so I've got some of these definitions straight out of that, and then also the Pentecostal literature itself. So out of this, this Wesleyan holiness movement came this teaching of a second grace or a second working of the Holy Spirit that happens after salvation, all right? And what happened was in Wesleyanism, the foundation for that was personal holiness. So sometimes it's called the Wesleyan holiness movement. And so your personal holiness, if you behaved good enough, you'd get more of the Holy Spirit. How many of you ever heard something like that taught? Right? And that infected independent Baptist circles through people like John R. Rice and others. And that's an unbiblical teaching. You just, I, I can't do anything to get more of the Holy Spirit. I can't. It's grace. It's free. All right? Now, should we be holy? We just preached on personal holiness a couple of weeks ago. Of course we're supposed to be holy. But that doesn't have anything to do with me getting the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the, the foundation for Wesleyanism is that your own personal holiness leads to more Holy Spirit and more power and more ability. Okay? The Moody Handbook of Theology, it defines classic Pentecostalism. 1901, Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues at Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. So from that came the entire modern Pentecostal movement. This launched the Azusa Street Revival from 1906 to 1907 under William Seymour. And so in Topeka, Kansas, it was a group of people that grew into the Pentecostals. The Azusa Street Revival was at a black-type Pentecostal holiness church. And that's the foundation of it. The Nazarenes came out just almost immediately in 1908. 
In October 1907, the Association of Pentecostal... Now, this information is not from ENDS. This information is from Nazarene.org. This is their own history. Um, in October 1907, the Association of Pentecostal Churches of America and the Church of the Nazarene merged in Chicago, Illinois at the First General Assembly. How many of you did not know that Nazarenes and Pentecostals were the same family? How many of you did not know that? Same group. It's the same group of people. In April 1908, a congregation organized in Peniel, Texas, drew into the Nazarene movement the key officers of the Holiness Association of Texas. So what most people do know if you've been a part of a Nazarene church is the connection with Wesleyan holiness. All right. So what's the difference then in a Nazarene church and the Pentecostal church? Mostly the apostolic gifts, things like tongues and other things. Most Nazarene churches didn't have tongues and those types of things. The Pentecostal churches did. But their view of the second working of the Holy Ghost, their view that you can lose your salvation, the view that you don't get sanctified when you're first saved, but that you can reach a state of sinless perfection, all of that comes from the Wesleyan holiness movement. All right. The Pennsylvania Conference of the Holiness Christian Church united in September 1908. In October 1908, the Second General Assembly was held at Pilot Point, Texas, the headquarters of the Holiness Church of Christ. With the Pentecostal Church of Scotland and Pentecostal Mission Unions in 1915, the Church of the Nazarene embraced seven previous denominations and parts of two other groups. The Nazarenes and the Wesleyan Church emerged as the two denominations that eventually drew together a majority of the holiness movement's independent strands. That's from Nazarene.org, their history section. So the Wesleyan Church and the Nazarene Church, fundamentally the same thing. Fundamentally the same thing. Okay, so the Pentecostal, classic Pentecostalism started in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. It really exploded after the Azusa Street Revival, 1906-1907 in Los Angeles. The Nazarene movement was a whole group of these holiness and Pentecostal people that gathered into one specific denomination. All right, now the charismatic renewal, most of what we know about the charismatic movement now it's from 1960 on. It's really interesting. It's a very new movement. It's very new. And the charismatic renewal started around 1960. And this is when all of the charisma, the, the word charisma comes from a Greek charismata, and it, it just means gifts. And it's talking about the apostolic gifts. And so what people were wanting, just like Wesley, they were trying to find a deeper experience with God rather than just the Bible talks about, um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. So that's personal holiness. You all agree with that? Mm -hmm. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by an amazing personal experience. How do you do it? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, we're never told to look for an experience. We're told to know God, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, against the knowledge of Christ. The whole, the whole Christian faith, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, I would that you all speak the same thing but that there be, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The, the, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, he, he says, and, and beseech those holy women, Yodius and Syntyche, that they be of one mind in the Lord. The, the whole Christian faith, it's all about your mind. It's not about the experience, but your body likes the experience. The sad thing about the whole experiential movement is there's only one personality type that can know God. The emotional and feelings-based people, they can know God. The logic and reason-based people, they can never understand the fullness of the Holy Ghost. It's awful, isn't it? So you end up with haves and have-nots in the family of God. Here's the good news about it. Emotionally based people, you ready for this? Did you know they can still think? 
That's why, that's why God chose that way to communicate His truth, because it's good for everyone. It's good for everyone, all right? So this second wave, the charismatic renewal, was a revival of those spiritual gifts, and it's sometimes called the second wave. Dennis Bennett was an Episcopalian preacher. Notice that he's not a Pentecostal preacher. He's an Episcopalian. That's, that's the American version of Anglican. And so the difference between the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement, how many of you thought they were the same thing? They're not. They're not. Because one of the things that happens is it spread to the Catholic and Protestant churches alike. So in the Catholic churches, there was the charismatic renewal. So you would have Catholic priests teaching how to speak in tongues. Catholic priests teaching how to heal. You would have... There there were men like... um, How many of you have heard of a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones? Martin Lloyd-Jones ended up being a charismatic. He got his prayer language right before he died. And so these, these movements were infected by this second wave of the charismatic renewal. So I want you to see a distinction between Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. There are Pentecostal preachers that speak against the charismatic movement. Right? So we have to be careful not to conflate them. But the big problem with that is they're disappearing. They're disappearing, and I'll show you why in a minute. I want us to talk a little bit about about the Pentecostal and charismatic theology. What do they believe? So this is from the Dictionary of Pentecostal Movements. They subscribe to a work of grace, subsequent or after, subsequent to conversion, in which spirit baptism is evidenced by glossolalia, that's the speaking in tongues. So the charismatic movement says when you get the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. But the Apostle Paul said not all people speak in tongues. So that's not that, that can't be true. It's unbiblical. All right. They believe that all the spiritual gifts are for today. And, of course, that's not true, and we'll talk about that later. Who are the Pentecostal groups? The assemblies, remember, these are Pentecostal, not charismatic, although some of these are charismatic. But the Pentecostal groups are Assemblies of God, Church of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee, Church of God in Christ, the United Pentecostal Church. The charismatics have a wider ecclesiastical. Now, ecclesiastical, that just means church group. They have a wider ecclesiastical latitude being found in the major Protestant denominations as well as Roman Catholicism. So a Pentecostal may be charismatic, may not be charismatic. All right? But the charismatic movement has infected all of Christianity. Apostolic Pentecostal Church and International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. That's another group. So you have the, the, the classic Pentecostalism. Then the second wave started in 1960, and that was the, the revival of the... Um, the, the spiritual gifts of healing and tongues and that kind of thing. The third wave is where it got crazy. All right? is a term coined by Peter Wagner. They identify with the first wave of Pentecostalism and the second wave, that's the charismatic renewal, in their emphasis on healing, exorcism, and receiving revelation. All right? So that is that the preacher can heal, that salvation in, in the atonement is your salvation, your spiritual healing, but also physical healing. The Bible never promises that, but that's a part of it. They also include exorcism. I don't do exorcisms. You know, I've met some of your children, and I think maybe we should start. (laughs) Um, That kind of activity only happens when Jesus Christ is coming, and, and we could look at that another time. Um, but we just, there's just not a whole lot of need for exorcisms. See, the idea is, uh, I, I had a guy, a family, they visited a church, and the lady wore pants, and so the pastor came to the house later and wanted to cast out the demon of pants wearing from her. Is that weird? Come on. Um, I'm filtering right now, just so you know. Um, they identify with first and second wave, exorcism and receiving revelation. What is receiving revelation? That you're still you know, hearing from God in the same sense as Scripture, that the Bible's not done. What they believe is that you have to get more revelation from God so that you can understand your Bible, and that's just not true. God gives you the mind of Christ. The way that you understand the Bible is by the mind of Christ. Let's look at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 2.
verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given unto us of God, which things we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now we understand those spiritual things with spiritual. Jesus said in John 63, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so the natural man, verse 14, but the natural man, that's the lost man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual, that's the saved man, judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so what, the, what God does is He gives us the mind of Christ so that we can understand the Bible, and that's how He communicates to us. We don't have any further revelation from God than the Bible itself. What are the doctrinal affirmations of charismatic theology? Now, what we're going to do now is, what I want you to see is there are probably 350 million charismatics in the world now. It, it's, it's the fastest growing of all of the religions. 350 million. And the Pentecostal, the old line Pentecostal, they're, they're almost gone. The charismatic movement has, has overtaken it. So when I moved to Sydney 20 years ago, there were a lot of small Pentecostal churches around Sydney. Most of those are gone, and they've all gone to only believe. How many of you know what I'm talking about with that, right? So that's, what, that's what's happened. And only believe is a full, charismatic, word of faith church. So that word of faith movement has subsumed all of these Pentecostal movements. Now, are there still some Bible-preaching, conservative Pentecostal churches that are not charismatic? Yes, but they're very difficult to find. It's not a large movement. All right? So, the doctrinal affirmations of charismatic theology. What do they affirm? What do they believe? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostal Fellowship of North America, this is what they state. We believe that the full gospel includes holiness of heart and life, healing for the body, and baptism in the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. That's what they believe. We don't believe any of that. Right? So uh, this is this their statement. The Assemblies of God, quote, This wonderful experience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is, dis is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. It's distinct and it comes later. That's unbiblical. All right? What about speaking in tongues? Pentecostals and Charismatics also believe that speaking in tongues is an initial evidence of the spirit baptism. <coughs> Continuing revelation. Pentecostals and charismatics teach that the gift of prophecy, that's the giving of divine revelation, continues today. And again, that's the, from the Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic Movements. What about the gift of healing? Pentecostals and charismatics generally teach there is healing in the atonement. So the atonement is the, the payment that Christ made on the cross for us. So that Christ died for our sicknesses as well as our sins. And on that basis, Christians may claim health. Well, then why do any of us die? This is a very troubling position. It's a very troubling position. When my mom got cancer, my mom was one of the holiest people I've ever known. Strongest in faith. She lived with my dad for a lot of years. <laughs> strong in faith. When she got cancer, was that because her faith wasn't strong enough? I had some friends in Bible college. Their mom um, got involved in this word of faith movement. So our son Riley was born. He had trisomy 13. That is, he has an extra 13th chromosome. So that means every cell of his body was deformed. Very sick little boy. He had an extra finger. He had one eye that didn't develop. His chin didn't develop. He had a protruding forehead. He was a really sick little boy. And she cared about me. Her name is Marlene. And she said, they call me Jimmy. Jimmy, if your faith is strong enough, God will heal him. So when Riley died, is that because my faith wasn't strong enough? That's a damnable lie. Could God have healed him? Yes, but God chose not to. That's not up to me. So this type of teaching on healing, it causes tremendous despair. Signs and wonders. 
In this phenomena, a person is overcome by the Spirit or falling under the power of the Spirit and falls down. If you'll notice, that slaying in the Spirit always falls back. Man, you've got to read your Bible. In the Bible, those worshiping Jesus fall forward on their face. It's willful. The enemies of God fall back. Remember they came to arrest Jesus? We search Jesus. We search for Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. The whole army falls back. You know what? I want to I be the one that falls on my face for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This slain in the Spirit, there is zero scriptural warrant for it. It's not a biblical teaching. It's a pagan teaching. All right? It is considered a deeply spiritual experience in which a person has lost, has a loss of feeling or control. What is the gift of the Spirit? Self-control. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians eleven three. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted. What is that? So you're what? So that you don't have a bad experience, so that you'll have a great experience. No, it's all about your mind. Um, so that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, I'm going to show you that in a minute. Or if you receive another spirit which you have not received. That spirit that causes you to fall back, that's not the spirit of self-control. That's not the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. In Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, Maria B. Woodsworth Etter, Catherine Kuhlman. How many of you remember Catherine Kuhlman? Man, go on YouTube and watch her. Man, What a freaky deal that was. Um <laughs> Kenneth Hagin Sr. and Charles and Francis Hunter, the happy hunters, have been most closely associated with all of that silliness. Positive confession, this is dangerous stuff. Positive confession, let's explain what this is. It's the faith formula or it's the prosperity doctrine. Because Satan defeated Jesus Christ on the cross, God needs permission to work in the world now. And so, positive confession allows God to work. It refers to bringing into existence what we state with our mouth, since faith is a confession. So, those same people that said that uh, God would heal Riley, this guy had a brand new Mercedes. And so, we were driving down the road, and I said, in the name of Jesus, I speak that you're supposed to give this car to me. He just kept looking straight ahead. Didn't even acknowledge what I had said. It's taught by Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Charles Capps, Frederick Casey Price, and, um, oh, who's the guy, that, the Cajun guy? What's his name? Jesse Duplantis. Okay. This doctrine was popularized by E.W. Kenyon, with its origin in, look at, new thought, which is uh, demonic, and with its emphasis on health or healing, abundance or prosperity, wealth and happiness. The Word of Faith movement is rooted in the metaphysical cults. Christian science, I'm going to show you that in a second. So remember Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science is not Christian, nor is it science. The, the founder of the Word of Faith movement is the one who taught Mary Baker Eddy this foolishness. Same foundation. Kenneth Hagin and Mary Baker Eddy have the same theological foundation. It's heresy. It's demonic. The New Age movement. New thought. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that there's some higher thought that you can reach. And then Kabbalah, which of course is Jewish charismatic thought. This man's name was Phineas P. Quimby. I love that name. Isn't that awesome? But man, he was a devil. He studied spiritism, occultism, and hypnosis and influenced Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian science. Adherents teach that people become gods and therefore have authority over sickness and have the right to wealth and prosperity. Is there any difference between that and Mormonism? No, it's absolute heresy. Can I, heresy. Can I tell you something? You're not a god. There's one god and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. 
These people are heretics. This is evil. I know that's going to show up in one of Pastor Nathan's videos. Right there. It's a collection of cultic doctrines combined with Christian terminology. So now let me just be very clear in case you don't understand how clear I'm being. I know that I struggle with clarity. This is only believe. All right? Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man, and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. It's absolute heresy. That's the Word of Faith movement. Where did he get that idea? A guy named Earl Polk. Let, let's see if this sounds anything like what Creflo Dollar. Um, I was listening to a guy named Justin Peters. He said that he is the most aptly named of these Word of Faith people, that Creflo Dollar. That's funny, isn't it? Just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so God has little gods. We are little gods. That's where he got that teaching. It's just, it is absolutely ridiculous. Are you ready for this? What did Satan say to Eve? You will be like God. What did, what did Lucifer want? I will be like the Most High. It's, it's just satanic heresy. And whether you go back to Plato or you go to Origen, public enemy number one of every Bible-believing Christian, this type of heresy has always been around. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan only has a few plays. And here it is showing itself in full-orbed form in the Word of Faith movement. Dangerous doctrines. Positive speech. That's where you speak things into existence. God is subservient to these universal laws of attraction. That's what they call them. God is subservient. So in Luke chapter 1, look there with me. I want you to see something. Verse 18. So remember Zacharias um, and Elizabeth, God says they're going to have a baby. And Zacharias said unto the angel, so we're in Luke 1, 18. Zacharias said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. So remember, he laughed. How in the world are we going to have kids? We're too old. And so God punished him. 
by not letting him talk for a little while. That's what happened. Listen to Joel Osteen's explanation of that. You know that this is going to be awesome. Why did God take away his speech? So this is Joel Osteen. Why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future. And he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. So if Zechariah said, this isn't going to happen, then John wouldn't have been born and he wouldn't have been the forerunner of Christ. And Do you see how heretical this is? How many of you are glad God doesn't have to do what you say? Because if that was the case, some of y'all wouldn't be around anymore. I guarantee you people on the highway would be gone. God, get rid of this. Oh, that's from Discover the Champion in You, May 3rd, 2004. Our words, this is the teacher, this is what they believe. Our words reign over the God of the prosperity gospel preacher. If you are saved, you're a little God. Joel Osteen again. These people are so bad. Quote, In dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is that 99.9% of people are not bad people. They make poor choices, but deep down they've got a good heart. 2011, seeing people through the eyes of love. They have a good heart deep down. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. So does Osteen agree with the Bible or disagree? He's a heretic. He's an evil, wicked heretic. And he's the most popular preacher in the world. What does that tell you? The time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, deceiving and being deceived. They are wicked people following a wicked preacher. What do they need? They need the truth of the Word of God. But our culture, it's very tough. tough. You know, the Bible's a negative book. It's hard to be a positive preacher from a negative book. Very interesting. God needs our permission to work on The only creature that God gave authority in the earth legally to is a spirit in a dirt body. That means any spirit without a body is illegal on planet Earth. But here's the bigger statement. Even God himself is illegal on earth. Why? Because he is a spirit. And the law he set up by his own mouth was that only spirits with bodies can function on earth legally. That's why God could not interfere when Adam and Eve was, you know, kind of de deliberating on the fruit environment there in the book of Genesis. I mean, it, it bothered me. I'm sure it bothered you for years as a pastor. Uh, if God is so mighty, powerful, awesome, omnipotent, omniscient, why couldn't this mighty God who made 500 million planets and galaxies could not stop a skinny little woman from picking a fruit to destroy his whole program? I mean, come on, God, aren't you powerful? You can intervene, you can destroy the works of the devil, prevent the woman and save humanity. But he couldn't. Not that he didn't, he couldn't. Pastor, we get the mind of God about his will, we pray it. When we pray it, we give him legal right to perform it. Yes. Let me define prayer for you in this show. Prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. That's incredible. That is incredible. God could do nothing on earth. Nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God could do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. What do you all think about that? That's blasphemy. That is heresy. It, it is the, the, the most wicked thing you'll ever hear. God has to have my permission to work in the earth. 
How about this? We really begin to understand that, that, that when Jesus Christ paid the price, the first thing that happened after he said it is finished is the veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do that. But the price that was paid was there's now no separation. So that we have direct access in the Holy of Holies. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. Absolutely. And he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now can... Say that again because now, they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You, you're the, he's the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. It's hard for us to understand how bad these people are. How evil, how wicked, how blasphemous, how unbiblical it is. There's a, there's a verse of Scripture that they might not have seen. For God so loved the world that He gave His what? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's possible that maybe they were reading an ESV. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have, ever, but have eternal life. Is there something missing there? How about the NIV? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see the problem with taking biblical words out of the Bible? And just so you know, that's in the Greek. You know, well, maybe it wasn't in the Greek. Yes, it is. It's just a terrible translation of the verse. Why? Because begotten is a hard word to understand. There's this new invention. It's called a dictionary. It, this is complete nonsense. I, I don't have time to go into it. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. We are sons, the Bible says, by adoption. All right? Let's just do it. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 1, Galatians 4 and verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We become sons of God not because we were begotten by God, but because of adoption. That's the clear teaching of Scripture, but you know the Bible gets in the way of their teaching. What about differences? They have a different view of God. They have a different view of man. Kenneth Copeland. And I say this with all respect, so it don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, I am too. It's just heresy. What's the difference? Pentecostal and the Word of Faith movement. How many of you think there's a difference between that and us? So remember, I started this by saying there are, there are Pentecostal people that love the Lord just as much as we do, and we're going to be in heaven together. I'm sure there are saved people that attend Only Believe Ministries, but the leadership at Only Believe believes this. That's what they believe. That's what they bring in to preach. Folks, we need to understand what the difference is. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. I'm very thankful that we have the Word of God and that salvation is by grace through faith alone. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
I'm glad that the only thing I can do to be saved is to believe. Repent of my sin and believe what Jesus Christ has said. That's faith toward God, repentance, repentance toward God, and faith toward Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've been believing that you've got to do something to maintain your salvation or you have to do something to get your salvation, salvation is a free gift that is received as a gift from the, from the, the loving hand of the Savior who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life and that I could have eternal life. That's salvation. That's it. And let me just challenge you as your pastor today. If you and your attitude have become soft toward this kind of false doctrine, you need to ask God to give you a spine transplant. You need to ask God to help you to stand on the truth. That doesn't mean we go and be ugly to anybody at all. There are brothers in Christ. We're going to be gentle and kind and patient with them. But we cannot believe that their truth is the same thing as our truth. There's only the truth. And it's the Word of God. And that Word of Faith movement, remember the distinction that I'm making between the old line Pentecostal movement where we had some theological differences, things like eternal security and other things. And there are significant differences. But the difference between that and the Word of Faith movement is a completely different planet. And those old-line Pentecostals would have rejected this movement just as vociferously as we do. So let's make sure that we're strong in the faith, that we're not blown about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth can grow up into Him, unto the perfect man, even unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our desire. That's our goal from Ephesians 4. Let's be that. Amen? Let's be that. Let's sing this together.